0: Let's turn in our Bibles to the Book of Esther as we continue our journey through the Old Testament. We begin another new book study together at this time, the Book of Esther, kind of another one of what we would refer to these post-exile books. Uh, The historical setting of the Book of Esther more than likely probably finds itself somewhere historically between the time of uh, Ezra chapter uh, 6 and Ezra chapter 7. It seems that the book of Esther kind of would have itself fitting historically somewhere, most believe in that time frame. It basically gives to us a record of some of the events that took place regarding those Jews who still remained uh, back in the area of the captivity. And that did not choose to take the opportunity under Cyrus, who gave the release to the Jewish people to return back to Jerusalem, to restore and rebuild their temple as they returned back to the city of Jerusalem. Remember, that first remnant went back after the time of the Babylonian captivity. We know, of course, that ultimately the Medo-Persian Empire then conquered the Babylonians, and so they basically assimilated or took and absorbed under their reign, the Medo-Persian Empire, the Jewish people which had been taken into captivity under Babylonian uh, conquest. And remember Cyrus, the Persian king, was moved in the spirit to release the Jewish people to go back to restore and rebuild their temple, and a remnant returned under Zerubbabel, went back, the book of uh, Ezra gives to us that record, but there were many, more honestly, the majority that chose to stay in the area where they were and not return back. A few different delegations did go back, and this record, the book of Esther, gives to us some of what took place regarding those who were still there under the Medo-Persian Empire, the Jews who did not answer that, uh, if you would, invitation or calling to go back, and this gives to us some of the events that happened during that time, it's sort of the historical count of a tremendous victory over anti Semitism that came greatly against the Jewish people. And it gives to us the background for the celebration of Purim, which the Jews still celebrate many to this day with great enthusiasm. And we'll talk more about that when we get further in the book. Uh, basically, it was a, a unique portion and narrative of Scripture that was given to us, and we're going to see unique in the sense that uh, we'll find in the book of Esther sort of the invisible Handprint of God working behind the scenes historically. It's a record of the people, again, still living back in the land of captivity, and they see the Lord at work, helping and working among them, Uh, yet it's in a very supernaturally natural way. Uh, Often we talk about that, I've mentioned that I know many times before, that the Lord works sometimes in supernaturally natural ways. That is, the hand of God is directly involved in life events and situations, and God's kind of just working behind the scenes, maybe not in obvious ways, but yet nonetheless, it is His ways and His will that ultimately is coming about as God has this way of working all things in accordance with the counsel of His will. And bringing about even his plans and purposes despite the evil doings of men, the wrong decisions, the mistakes that people make. Even as affairs are happening historically in world situations, in personal levels where maybe we may be making our decisions or unfortunate things are happening to us. Nonetheless, God has a way of basically overruling in the affairs of mankind to still bring about his ultimate plans and purposes. And the book of Esther we'll see is a great fitting example of this very thing. Uh, What's very interesting is it's a book that really emphasizes the providence of God. Uh, That's kind of the underlying theme above all else is the providence of God. And again, when we talk about the providence of God, the word providence is sort of a compound word, a pro meaning before or ahead of time. And video, uh, pro video, that's kind of the original root from which it comes from. Video meaning to see or to be able to be aware and to see. So the providence of God speaks of how God sees things in advance. God is aware and sees things before they actually take place, and therefore he acts in accordance with that foresight and that awareness. That God having providence at times will work in certain ways perhaps now or in the present moment and he will work by his providence knowing that working such things now it will directly connect to what is going to happen down the road a week from now a month from now a year or years from now that God coordinates events for his good purposes to prepare to bring about what he ultimately wants down the road And it's a way God works in the care and love for his people by his wisdom at times God will allow certain things or permit certain things. God will coordinate certain events to happen and take place, putting people in the right places at the right times, permitting events even to unfold because he knows he can then use those things a week from now, a month from now, six months, a year, or years from now to bring about ultimately what he wants down the road. And this is the providential care of God. It's something that we as his children love and get to be the benefit and recipients of to know that God by his providence works now for what's coming in our life down the road or he has already worked things out in the past that are going to bring about what's best for us tomorrow because he knows the future and sees it before it comes to pass and works events accordingly for our benefit. Now, what is unique we'll see in this book, just one other thing to kind of take note of before we jump in together, is as I said, we see the providence of God at work, yet this is a unique biblical book, and particularly an Old Testament book, because we never see the name of God mentioned anywhere throughout the book. All throughout the other Old Testament books, of course, as we saw in Ezra and Nehemiah, the name of God is mentioned, direct references to God and his working are referenced. There is no mention in this book ever of God's name, of God's person. Uh, There's no mention of prayer. There's no reference to prophecy. There's no direct reference to sacrifices or to the law of the Lord, to the Bible, So very unique, it's almost as if purposely the Holy Spirit keeps those things silent with the intention of showing us that though we may not see directly on the surface specifically God's hand at work, nonetheless God behind the scenes is absolutely working. And God, in silent ways, can be working even when it doesn't seem like he is working. God is still in control even when it may seem like he's not in control. And he is able, behind the scenes, again, in very supernaturally natural ways, to still orchestrate events and accomplish what he wants to. So it's a great reminder of how God's silently moving behind the scenes but always at work. For our best in accomplishing his good purposes in the earth. Now, as we come into chapter 1, verse 1, we begin to pick up with the narrative. It tells us that it came to pass in the days of Ahasuerus. Now, we'll see this is also a title and a reference to who we also know historically as Xerxes, uh, who reigned from 486 BC to around 465 BC. Uh, and we're going to see that this is the man referenced here, Ahasuerus. He's also known more as Xerxes, and it tells us it was in his days, in the days of Ahasuerus or Xerxes, and this was the Ahasuerus, it says, who reigned over 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia. So we see the expansive reign of Xerxes or Ahasuerus over a tremendous amount of territory, and again, uh, this Persian emperor, this Persian ruler at this time, and it says, verse 2, that it was in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on the throne of his kingdom, which is in Shushan the Citadel. Now, as we've said before, Shushan the Citadel is basically the winter palace, if you would, uh, of the royal rulers at that time we saw this in our prior book so this area shush on the citadel was where they would winter at it was the royal palace of the rulers at that time and so at this point ahasuerus is there and it says verse three that this was in the third year of his reign which puts us around the time frame 483 484 B.C., when these events are taking place as we document them historically, it was in the third year of his reign that he made a feast for all of his officials and his servants and the powers of Persia and Media, the nobles and the princes of the provinces that being before him. When he showed the riches of his glorious kingdom and the splendor of his excellent majesty for many days... The Bible tells us 180 days in all. So we see this huge gathering that is hosted at the Winter Palace of Xerxes at this time where he brings together all of the different leaders from the 127 different provinces that he ruled over at this time, this expansive reign, and he brings together the nobles, it says, the princes... All together before him, many believe this was probably to strategize for some military endeavors that he was longing to be involved in. We know historically that he was trying to convince the people of his kingdom that they should launch an attack against Greece at this time. and So no doubt he was trying to convince the people that he had the resources and the wealth and the wherewithal to be able to do this. And he brings them together probably for a time of strategizing and to try and strengthen their resolve that they should join him in this military endeavor against the Greeks. And it says, verse 4, that he showed them all of his glorious kingdom and the splendor of his excellent majesty for many days. So he's trying to show them the vast amount of wealth and resources and that they would build their confidence to join him In this military endeavor, it says it took 180 days, so six months. You're going to talk about a long celebration or a a long festive party uh, that was going on, as we're going to see as we go on reading down here. Now, it's very likely that he was bringing in the different leaders of these 127 provinces kind of in groups, maybe not all at the same time. That would certainly destabilize the whole kingdom. If he brought all the leaders together, that could potentially create some instability among the territories that they reigned over. So probably he brought them through in different groups, alternating and bringing in different ones at a time. And that's why it took about a six-month period to show all of his glory and wealth and all that he had under his excellent majesty. Now, nonetheless, that just goes to show you, I mean, to take six months to show off all your stuff and your glory of your kingdom, uh, that's a pretty impressive kingdom. What's more impressive is that the Bible tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, that it is actually going to take the Lord Jesus, the eternal ages to come, to show us all the riches and the kindness and the glory of his kingdom. So it took six months for Xerxes, it's going to take, it seems, all of eternity to see the expansiveness of the glory of our king, the Lord Jesus, according to Ephesians chapter 2. So as he's bringing them together for this six-month-long festive celebration it says verse 5 when the days were completed the king then made a feast at the end of this lasting for seven days for all the people who were present in shushan the citadel from great to small in the court of the garden of the king's palace so he now launches a week-long feast of celebration and it says verse 6 there were white and blue linen curtains fastened with cords of fine linen and purple on silver rods and marble pillars, so beautiful decorations displaying the royalty and all the majesty behind these things. And there was silver on mosaic pavement of alabaster and turquoise and white and black marble. And they served drinks in golden vessels. Now, when you can serve drinks in golden vessels to lots and lots of people. It gives you an idea of how much gold and silver is involved in the majesty of a kingdom. They serve drinks in golden vessels, each vessel also being different from the other. So these weren't just uh, cookie-cutter vessels made there of these uh, gold vessels. These were uniquely handcrafted. So again, just showing you the extensiveness, how ornate these things were, how extravagant each vessel being different from the other. With the royal wine in abundance. So, this wasn't just the generic cheap stuff. This was the best of the best. The royal wine he brought out according to the generosity of the king. So, he really wants to lavish everything he has upon this celebration. Verse 8 says it was done in accordance with the law. The drinking was not compulsory. For so the king had ordered all the officers of his household that they should do according to each man's pleasure, or as to fulfill himself according to his own pleasure or desire. Now what that's referring to there in verse 8 when it says the drinking was not compulsory, that is it wasn't regulated, there was no compulsory obligation that they could only partake of so much, that they were only entitled to so much of this very special royal wine with the vessels. The idea is, okay, that's your limit. You can have one or two glasses. The idea there is, is he was offering no limit to indulgence, that whoever was celebrating and drinking, they could just drink without any regulation all the royal wine they wanted to. He was trying to show his lavishness at this time, But unfortunately, it turns into quite a drunken party, which makes a lot of foolish decisions as a bunch of drunken people begin to have their inhibitions altered and they start to behave in pride-filled and foolish ways. So at this point, they could have as much as they wanted. Everyone could drink according to their own pleasure as much as they wanted to indulge the alcohol. In verse 9, we begin to see some of the outcomes of this very loosely regulated drinking party where alcohol begins to dominate the scene and many foolish and wrong activities begin to happen. Verse 9, it says, Queen Vashti also made a feast for the women in the royal palace, which belonged to King Ahasuerus. So as he was entertaining his guests, his queen Vashti, She's also hosting another feast of her own, and she's entertaining some of the women in the royal palace, no doubt the wives and the other companions who were there with those who came. In verse 10, it says, On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine. Now, that's another way of the Bible saying he was drunk as a skunk. He was pickled. He was merry with wine. The idea is he was filled with the influence of wine and his heart was completely under the influence of that substance and he was intoxicated. His judgment was altered. He was what we call punch drunk at this point in time. So as he finds himself greatly under the influence of the wine, it says that the king commanded Mahuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abgatha. And Zethar and Carcass, seven eunuchs who serve in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king, wearing her royal crown, in order to notice, show her beauty to the people and the officials, for she was beautiful to behold. Now, when the Bible says that a woman is beautiful to behold, uh, that's an indication that she's a very attractive woman when the Holy Spirit records it. In that way, directly. So, uh, King Ahasuerus, uh, he has this very gorgeous queen for a wife. And as he begins now to become intoxicated, and his inhibitions are lowered, and his pride is inflated, all of a sudden now, instead of showing love and care for his wife, wanting to honor her dignity, wanting to protect his wife as any husband should, instead, he wants to parade his wife, before a bunch of drunken friends in this party. He wants to bring her out with her crown on and begin to kind of just parade her beauty. Now, to what extent he wanted to parade her beauty, we are not told. But nonetheless, the motive and the reasoning is still wrong. Uh, In pride, he's wanting to kind of just show off his wife's beauty. He cares nothing of her own dignity or any embarrassment or awkwardness this may cause or not knowing again what kind of sensual and filthy thoughts these drunken men with him are going to be thinking towards his wife. He's exposing his wife to a very vulnerable and awkward situation as he now encourages his wife to be brought before the men gathered with him who were drunk in order to show her beauty to the people. And it tells us here that, again, he did this in a state of drunkenness. And we're going to see his decisions will continue in this state of drunkenness as others who are drunk together with him make these decisions. And again, we just take note of in the Scripture how so often, many times, when people are under the influence of alcohol, we see poor decisions made. We see decisions that are made that that, just cause harm to marriage relationships, end up making foolish choices, regretful decisions, and again, all of these things are being done because at this point in time, he is under the influence of alcohol. And again... We may have differences of opinion in regards to whether or not it's acceptable or not acceptable to drink, but one thing is very clear in the Scripture. Whenever people are drinking and become intoxicated and drunk, it is always displayed in the Bible not only as sinful and wrong, but very destructive. People make foolish decisions that harm their families, harm their marriages, decisions that lead to regret and problems, and this is exactly what we see happening here. This is all going on because of the negative influence of the alcohol over his mind at this time and controlling his behavior, his thoughts are messed up, his speech becomes foolish and the things that he demands. And so he commands, it says, these seven eunuchs to bring out his wife to parade her before the other drunken men. Now, we take notice, these seven men who were eunuchs, they serve in the presence of the king, and this was very common. Uh, When a king had a harem or the king had those who worked around him, many times he would castrate the young men who would work for him and who would perhaps provide oversight over uh, the women's quarters and so forth. And the reason for castrating these men and making them eunuchs, and that's what the idea of eunuch means there, was so that there was no concern that they would defile his dynasty, that they would in any way interfere romantically or sexually with any of his queen or princesses or any of the harem that he may have. So this was a common thing to castrate the servants who would work with the women to sort of safeguard against that. So these seven eunuchs are given this command, but look at verse 12. Queen Vashti, it says, refused to come at the king's command brought by his eunuchs. So it shows you her mindset that she was not going to compromise her dignity because her drunk husband wanted to parade her in some provocative way before his friends to show off his beautiful wife or whatever his mentality was and why he wanted to do this, whether sensual or not. She just absolutely refused. I am not doing that. I'm not going to compromise my morals and go out and do that because in some drunken stupor, that's what he's requesting or what these piggish men are desiring at this time. So she refused to come. But notice verse 12 says at the king's command. This wasn't just an issue as she was refusing to obey her husband and the authority of her husband. But the bigger issue here is she's refusing to obey not just her husband, but her husband is the king, the highest ranking man in the empire of the Persian Empire. She is refusing, as a person of the empire, the request of the king. Now that's what's going to get her in really hot water because she's rebelling against the authority of the king, not just refusing to do what her husband asks of her. So it says, verse 12, she refused to come, the king's command, by his eunuchs. Therefore, the king was furious, and his anger burned within him. So he becomes offended in his pride. He becomes greatly incensed. Anger takes over him. And it says, verse 13, the king said to his wise men who understood the times, for this was the king's manner toward all who knew law and justice. That is, they always had kind of wise men and advisory council around them, sort of cabinet members who would help them make their decisions. And so he consults those closest to him being, verse 14, Karshina and Shether, and Admetha, and Tarshish, and Meres and Morsena, and Mamukin, the seven princes of Persia and Meda, who had access to the king's presence, who ranked highest in his kingdom. And he asked them what he should do in light of this refusal of Queen Vashti to obey his command. So verse 15, he says, what shall we do to Queen Vashti according to law? Because she did not obey the command of King Ahasuerus, who brought her... By the eunuchs. And Mamukin, and keep in mind, these guys are probably just as drunk as the king is at this time. Mamukin answered before the king and the princes, Queen Vashti has not only wronged the king, but also all the princes and all the people who are in the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will become known to all the women. In other words, this refusal is going to set a bad precedent, he's saying, to all of the women in the society. The queen's, the queen's behavior will become known, he says, verse 17, to all the women so that they will then despise their husbands. This is going to cause a, a, an unhealthy thing where all the women are going to begin to disrespect their husbands because they'll say, well, the queen did it, and so let's rally behind her cause and it will be misunderstood. And they say, this is, this is a great threat to the stability of the function of how society would operate. So they will despise their husbands in their eyes when they report King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought in before him, but she did not come. This very day, the noble ladies of Persian media will say to all the king's officials that they have heard of the behavior of the queen. Thus, there will be excessive contempt and wrath. So at this point in time, they become concerned oh this isn't just an isolated issue because she's the queen she's a representation of the women throughout the kingdom and when they hear of her behavior they say king her behavior to reject your authority not only as her husband but as the king this is going to begin to infect all of the attitudes of the women in the culture they say and they are going to begin to have contempt excessive contempt towards their husbands. They're going to despise the role of their husbands as leaders in their homes and begin to become disrespectful and rebellious, and it will destroy the fabric work of the culture and society. And, And this is a great problem, and it must be dealt with very severely, they're implying. So verse 19, this is what they propose, again, in their drunken condition. If it pleases the king, let a royal decree... Go out from him and let it be recorded in the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it will not be altered. Now, take notice of that. Whenever a decree was made culturally in the Medo Persian Empire, we know we see this in the book of Daniel as well. Once a law or decree was made by the ruler, it could not be altered, even if he changed his mind. So, so strongly that they believed they were absolutely right when they made their decisions. <laughs> That once a decree was made, they would not go back on it. That's why in Daniel's book, remember when they convinced uh, the leader in that time to say that Daniel or that no one should be allowed to pray to anyone other than to the ruler of the Medo Persian Empire, once the decree was issued afterwards, when Daniel was caught praying, Darius had no other option than to throw him into the lion's den. Because his decree could not be altered. So they're trying to convince the king, look, you need to make a decision and make it a firm decree, write it in the books as a law so this cannot be altered ever, ever again. So they say, let it be written that it may not be altered, verse 19, that Vashti shall come no more before the king Ahasuerus and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. In other words, we need to depose her as the queen and then ultimately replace her with a new wife and new queen for you. And when the king's decree, verse 20, which he will make is proclaimed throughout all his empire, for it is great. Then all wives will honor their husbands, both great and small. So they say, if you do this. It will help to preserve the way families function in the society, and we want to make sure husbands are altered, and so they kind of exaggerate this whole thing, that this was necessary to make sure that wives would honor their husbands. Now, look, though the Bible does teach that the way that husbands and wives operate, that a wife should honor her husband, that she should respect her husband and be submissive to his leadership, this is not the way to get a wife to honor and to respect her husband. By force, or by pressure, or by treating your wife in a harsh or a wrong way, like King Ahasuerus was, where he was demanding her to do something that was completely inappropriate and wrong, or by force, using his authority to make her submit to him, to make her honor him. That is not the way you win over a woman's respect and give her a desire to honor you. The way that you gather respect from a wife is you earn her respect you win her respect you don't demand her respect you don't demand her submission you earn it by by treating her in a loving appropriate way being honorable to where she then willingly in a sense earns the the in a sense uh you know develops the respect to want to honor you That is the biblical approach of being able to get a wife to honor her husband. But here they're trying to force this. Look, we need to depose her, get you a new queen so that all of these ladies in the culture, the they all fall into place and make sure they honor their husbands when they see the strong stance you take as you level this law in light of what Vashti has done. Verse 21, and the reply says, pleased the king and the princes, and the king did according to the word of Mamukin and then he sent letters to all the provinces, to each province in its own script, so word went out to every people in their own language that each man should be master in his own house and speak in the language of his own people. So King Ahasuerus, in his drunkenness, in his anger, in his pride, in the... Uh, you know kind of hastiness of the moment, which this is how people make bad decisions in haste. this is how a lot of bad decisions are made hastily impulsively when people are drunk and they're not thinking correctly. He makes this major decision to issue a decree that cannot be altered that his queen would be deposed from her position. That she would be removed not only from the throne, but she would be removed from being the wife of the king, and that he would find a replacement wife and a replacement queen, and that this was going to be a decree that was issued and spread abroad all throughout the empire just to try and set a precedent for the women in the culture that they should be more respectful towards their husbands. And he hastily jumps in. He agrees with this. Letters of this decree are sent now all throughout the empire. Now, here's what's interesting we're going to see that this then leads, of course, to ultimately Esther, who the book is about, becoming the next queen to King Xerxes or King Ahasuerus, which is going to position Esther as a Jew in such a place so that for such a time as this, she will be in the role and have access to the king, which allows her to step in as an intermediary to have favor and access to the king, to be able to spare the annihilation of all of the Jewish people a few years down the road from this time. And again, we see how though these things are happening in world affairs, you have pagan kings and princes and people having a drunken party and doing just wrong things, making bad decisions and behaving badly and making cruel and selfish decisions legislating things that were were wrong and were inappropriate but yet nonetheless god is overruling in those things again he's not causing these decisions but he overrules in this and allows these events to unfold knowing that years down the road when haman and some of these other characters come into our story and they create this plot to assassinate and to annihilate all of the Jewish people in a spirit of anti-Semitism that God orchestrates and allows these events to happen so that the right person can be in the right place at the right time, and that's going to be Queen Esther, the new queen of King Ahasuerus, so that she can then be a voice of reason to speak up as an advocate that God will use to spare the Jewish people from complete annihilation at that set point in time and again this just reminds us God working in supernaturally natural ways God in his providence seeing what was going to happen down the road allowing events to unfold as they were but also orchestrating and preparing things so that he could put the right wife the secondary wife that is with King Ahasuerus which will spare the Jewish people and will ultimately preserve God's plans and purposes For his people. So, how encouraging that despite what's happening in the world, despite cruel things that happen, wrong things that happen, sinful things that happen, to know that that in those things, God can always still overrule to work things according to the counsel of his will. God can always, even through the evil of man, still produce and bring about his good purposes in the end. He can work all things together for the good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So whether that's happening on national levels, whether that's happening in the events and circumstances of our life, maybe some horrible things have happened or unfair things have happened, we've been mistreated, somebody's done us wrong, we can know that our God and His providence is still looking out for us and He's going to still put pieces together. And even wrong things that happen that men do, God can still take them and orchestrate those things to ultimately bring about His best in the end. So at this point, the decision has now been made. Queen Vashti will be deposed. She will no longer be the queen, and at this time, they're encouraging that he should find himself a new queen. As we come into chapter 2, it says, now after these things, and we know historically, chronologically, actually a few years have now passed. So kind of keep that in your frame of reference. A few years actually passed from this event to now where these events begin to unfold, when the wrath of King Ahaziah subsided, so he kind of gets over his anger and his temper tantrum, his season of bitterness when his pride was offended as the king because of what happened, a season has gone by, and it tells us that he then remembered Vashti, and it seems to be the idea there is he remembered kind of with regret, this is somewhat implying, that there was something in his heart realizing, man, I really made some foolish decisions. Here I had a good wife, and, and here she was beautiful, and, and I was a blessed man and, and had wonderful things, and yet in a moment of drunkenness and pride and foolish decisions, I made some hasty choices that basically ruined my marriage calls me to lose what was a very wonderful thing, and it seems there's some measure of regret now. A few years down the road, he's somewhat thinking about what he's done with regret and wishing, it seems, maybe that he could bring her back to himself as his queen. The problem we're going to see is because he issued a decree as the leader of Persia, he can't even alter his own decree. He's unable to bring her back to himself as a wife. It says that he remembered Vashti What she had done, the idea is what she did was right, and he realized, you know, what she did was actually pretty noble, refusing me and standing up to me. What she had done and what had been decreed against her. So he realizes, man, what regret I have for what I did in light of the right thing that she did in that day. And he's remembering now his decree, and he kind of feels stuck. What am I to do? I can't bring her back. And he's no doubt struggling. He's probably depressed and discouraged and the people around him begin to recognize this. So that's why verse two says that they say to him, the king's servants who attended him, let beautiful young virgins be sought for the king. King, look, it's time, as we said originally, for you to basically give the royal position of Vasti to another. That's what they said in chapter one, verse 19, depose her as the queen as the queen and and let another be given her royal position. So they say, look, it's been years now, king. It's time to find you a new wife, a new queen. So let beautiful young virgins be sought for the king. Now again, here they are coming up with these ideas. They are saying these things as evil men, but yet God is using all these things to orchestrate the pieces to get Esther into the position where she will become the next queen of Persia, and will be in the right place at the right time. God will position her right where she needs to be through these actual events. So they say, let beautiful young virgins be sought for the king, and let the king appoint officers, verse 3, in all the provinces. It says that all the beautiful young virgins to Shushan the citadel into the women's quarters under the custody, notice, of Haggai, the king's eunuch, custodian of the women. So Haggai was responsible as the custodian over the women, and let beauty preparations be given to them. Again, they're going to be the potential queen of the king of Persia, so bring them in and begin to pamper them and give them beauty treatments, oils, and everything that's necessary. We're going to do everything we can to get these women prepared to be beautiful so that ultimately one of them can replace the beautiful queen Vashti that once was the wife of the king. Verse 4, then let the young women who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti, and this thing pleased the king, and he did so. So they say, king, let's bring in some beautiful young virgins, let's beautify them, prepare them, and ultimately let one of these young women, whoever pleases you and who you choose, become the queen instead of Vashti. And he consented, okay. Let's begin this process. So verse 5 says, In Shushan the citadel there was a certain Jew whose name was Mordecai. And he'll become an important player in this book. Mordecai, he's going to see he's a man of great integrity. And it seems a man who had a a godly uh, disposition and character. Mordecai, it says, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite. And Kish had been carried away from Jerusalem when the captives who had been captured with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. So he is the son of one of the captives who was brought away under the Babylonian captivity when they carried away the Jews originally. And this Mordecai, verse 7, had brought up Hadessa, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter. The idea is, is this would be his younger cousin so mordecai would be like an older cousin and esther is sort of a younger cousin but there's quite an age gap because he says brought her up for she had neither verse seven father nor mother and the young woman was lovely and beautiful and when her father and mother died mordecai took her in as his own daughter so this begins to show you the the heart of mordecai this man He is willing to take in his young cousin who becomes, in a sense, orphaned. Her father and mother die. She needs someone to help raise her. And it says that he was willing to take her in as his own daughter to raise her, provide for her, protect her. So he kind of adoptively brings her in to raise her as his own daughter at this time, Now, this begins to show you a little bit not only about Mordecai's character and his love for Esther and the connection that they had as family as he raised her, but also this begins to show some things about Esther. Esther, who becomes this great example of a godly woman in the scriptures, who is used by the Lord in a tremendous way. Take notice from what we're told here that her life had a pretty difficult start. Not only is she in captivity, is she in a foreign country, but on top of that, not just does she have the loss of one parent, but both her father and her mother die when she's a young girl. Now that's pretty traumatic. To have both parents die when you're a young girl, that's a huge tragedy in your life. But yet it was these difficulties early on in her life that actually became part of the plan of God that lead to the pathway of God's ultimate plan and purpose for her. Because it is actually because of the fact of what happened to her that she developed the character that she developed, that she became the woman that she did, that her Cousin Mordecai took her in and raised her, and she had the relational connection. And it will be because of that connection to Mordecai that God will ultimately, will see, bring about the plans and purposes of how he wants to use Esther to the fullest extent because it will be Mordecai who advises her and gives her guidance and counsel how to handle her affairs and her decisions. So just a good encouragement. Sometimes life may have a difficult background, a difficult start, but again, God, years in advance, can not only see those things happening, but be looking down the road and knowing how he can use those difficult starts and those early life struggles in people's lives to ultimately prepare them, to give them character, to let them become the person they need to be, connected to the people they need to be connected to, for God to do great and wonderful things down the road in their lives. You know, be encouraged by that. Whether you had a rough start, it doesn't mean that God can't use those things for wonderful things now or even down the road still. Be encouraged. If right now maybe you're going through some real hardships and difficulties, God never lets hardship and difficulty come into our lives in vain. He is a way of taking those things and working them all out according to his good purposes ultimately down the road. He somehow maximizes even our hardships, and that was the case with Esther. Her uncle or, I guess, older cousin Mordecai raises her because of the death of her two parents. And verse 8 tells us that so it was when the king's command and decree were heard and when many young women were gathered at Shushan the Citadel under the custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace. So she gets chosen as one of the potential brides, one of the potential queens in the future of King Ahasuerus. So she's brought now into the care of Haggai, the custodian of the women. Verse 9, now the young woman pleased him, and she obtained his favor, and he readily gave her beauty preparations besides her allowance. So the idea is Esther began to develop favor in the eyes of Haggai, the custodian of these women who were being treated with beauty preparations and prep to potentially become the next queen selected by the king. And again, how did she obtain favor? Well, it's because she had the character that she did. Something about her disposition, her nature, the way she handled herself, it was the quality of character she had that won her favor in the sight of the custodian and allowed him to give her, beyond her regular allowance, additional treatment, to treat her well, to treat her kindly, to bless her. And again, that was the favor of God. This is the hand of God behind the scenes, working, giving her favor in her life with the people who she is now sort of under the authority of. And God can give us favor with people. And God was giving favor to Esther here. And it says, verse 10, that then the seven choice maidservants who were provided for her from the king's palace and he also moved her and her maidservants notice it says verse 9 excuse me he moved her to the best place in the house of the women so she gets extra beauty treatments she gets moved to the best place in the house of all the women why because god was giving her favor and god can give us favor god can give us unique favor in the sight of people to where they honor us They do special things. Maybe they give us an opportunity that someone else doesn't have. How do we get jobs sometimes? Because God gives us favor in the eyes of an employer. And for some reason, God puts his favor in the heart of someone else towards us. And as a result, they treat us in a favorable manner. And it's just the hand of the Lord. Just in a very supernaturally natural way, Haggai took a liking to Esther and began to treat her very well because the hand of God was at work in her life. So verse 10 says, Esther had not revealed her people or her family, for Mordecai had charged her not to reveal it. So she did not reveal that she was a Jew. She did not disclose that because Mordecai advised her in his wisdom, do not disclose these things at this time. Now, ultimately, it will become important. But right now, this was not revealed because it could have diminished her chances of ultimately being selected as the next queen. So for whatever reason, Mordecai's prompted to tell her, don't reveal you're a Jew, and this will ultimately play out to a great benefit down the road. Again, God just using everyday events for things that would actually matter down the road in the process of events. So she did not disclose at this time she was a Jew. And verse 11 says, Every day Mordecai paced in front of the court of the women's quarters to learn of Esther's welfare and what was happening to her. So as a typical father, he was concerned. He was worried about her welfare and what was going on. and He was hanging around trying to keep tabs on how she was doing and her welfare. Verse 12 says, each young woman's turn came to go into King Ahasuerus after he had completed, or excuse me, after she had completed twelve months of preparation, according to the regulations for the women. For thus, these were the days of their preparation apportioned. Six months of oil and myrrh, and six months with perfumes and preparations for beautifying weapons. So, uh, take that into consideration there. Twelve months of beauty preparation, before they even went as a prospective bride and met and spent time with the king 12 months 12 months of oils and myrrh and lotions and perfumes and preparation for beautifying them this was how serious they took making sure that they were as beautiful as possible before they were presented to the king in his presence so for a year, this beautification process goes on with these women. And verse 13 says, Thus prepared then each young woman went to the king, and she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the, king's, the women's quarters to the king's palace. That is, she could pick whatever clothing, whatever jewelry, whatever perfumes. She could take whatever she wanted as she went and presented herself to the king. And in the evening she went and in the morning she returned in the second house of the women and the custody of Oz, the king's eunuch, who kept the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and called for her by name. So they would go and spend a day with the The king, and if he had desire or found her favorable, then he would call for her by name and she would come back again and kind of the whole candidacy process as he was sort of evaluating each one of these women to be his future queen. understand our minds always want to go to the worst place and we would perhaps want to look at that and think well that means they were going and there was sensual uh, activity going on there were sexual relations well we don't know that for certain and it's interesting as you read further in the chapter it refers to these women still as the virgins so it is very likely that their virginity was still being preserved Up until the time that they were married, we can't be dogmatic that this was just a sensual interview process as he would spend the night with these women. That's not necessarily a guaranteed thing, certainly not that I endorse this whole process of how he's interviewing all these different women, Uh, certainly a a bit selfish, I think, in the approach of how this process is going on, but nonetheless, until he called for a woman by name again, she would not be asked back to spend time with the king. And verse 15 tells us, Now when the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihai. Uncle Mordecai, who had taken her as his daughter to go into the king, she requested nothing but what Haggai, the king's eunuch, the custodian of the women, advised. And Esther obtained favor in the sight of all who saw her. So it shows you again her attitude, just an unselfish woman. She didn't go in there and want to say, hey, well, give me the best garments and give me the best dress and do my makeup fantastic and I want the best perfume. She wasn't wanting to offer and present herself. She just is very humble. And what Haggai advised her to take, she said, look, I'm a simple woman and I'm not looking to go in there and force myself into the king's presence and win him over by a provocative appearance and however I can beautify myself. She just was who she was. Now, let me just say by way of typology, some of this is very interesting as the king now is having Esther and these other women coming into his presence. It is very interesting to take note of how, again, that the women were beautified before they would go into the king's presence And ultimately, the king would be the one who determined whether or not he would accept them in his grace and favor towards them. And Esther says, you know, I don't want to go in with all this excess and try and earn his favor by presenting myself in some positive light. I am who I am, and if he is willing to be gracious and merciful to me in my condition and accept me, uh, then, then I'm willing to humbly accept that. And this kind of reminds me of how... You know, we can seek with God as the King of Kings to try and present to him our best and make ourselves look wonderful and acceptable in his sight and, and kind of present to him all of our good works and why he should accept us and why he should approve of us as the King of Kings. And the reality is the Bible says that even our best efforts of righteousness are just like filthy rags in the sight of the Lord. Much better that kind of like the humility of Esther, our mentality would be, look, I'm willing to come to God as king just as I am. I don't have anything special to win his favor, anything to win his approval, and it's only going to be if I find favor because he is merciful and gracious towards me, that if he chooses to accept me, that I will find acceptance in his sight. And of course, we ultimately know that acceptance for us comes through the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what makes us acceptable in God's sight. So, Anyway, back to our story here. It says, Esther obtained favor in the sight of all who saw her. Verse 16, so Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the 10th month, which is in the month of Tibet, in the 7th year of his reign. So we can see multiple years have passed in all these things. Verse 17, and the king loved Esther. More than all the other women, he fell in love with Esther. He lavished his love upon her. And she obtained, notice, grace and favor in his sight. More than, notice, all the virgins. It was the king's love in his heart towards her, and it says that she found grace and favor in his sight. Just like it is when God is merciful to accept us as his bride, if you would, the bride of Christ. It is the love of God that causes him to look upon us in grace and favor, of course, through our Lord Jesus Christ, that lets us become the bride of Christ and for God to ultimately take us to himself in relationship. So Esther actually wins, you hate to say, the beauty pageant or this huge beauty contest, and she gets selected now to be the next queen in place of Vashti. It says, he put the crown, the royal crown, verse 17, upon her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And then the king made a great feast, the feast of Esther for all his officials and servants. He proclaimed a holiday in the provinces and gave gifts according to the generosity of the king. And when the virgins were gathered together a second time, Mordecai sat within the king's gate. So Mordecai now finds himself Among the gate of the king, remember the gate in a city was always where the politicians, the rulers, the military leaders gathered. It was where they made decisions about law, strategy, and military. So Mordecai finds himself among these important people in the society. He must have been, to a degree, a respected man. He was in the king's gate, and it says, verse 20, that Esther had not revealed her family and her people. Again, she had not revealed that she was Jewish in her ethnicity, just as Mordecai had charged her, for Esther obeyed the command of Mordecai as when she was brought up by him. So again, the wisdom of Esther, to respect the authority, if you would, of the father figure in her life, benefits her greatly, because taking his counsel and his wisdom worked ultimately, we're going to see, to the best benefit, because she obeyed the wisdom and counsel of the father figure Mordecai in her life. And he had told her, look, don't reveal these things yet. And it says she had not revealed her people just as Mordecai had charged her because she had become accustomed to obeying his command as the father figure in her life when she was brought up by him. Again, respect and submission to authority often has much more far-reaching benefits than we often recognize. Being someone who respects authority, whether it's respecting the authority of a parent, respecting authority of those in leadership over us, can ultimately benefit us greatly. And because she takes the advice of Mordecai, ultimately this will be a key piece we're going to see in the chapters ahead to, at the right place and the right time, her revealing her Jewish nationality and pleading that her husband the king would spare the Jewish people, which were her people, Because she ultimately would have been killed as well as the queen who was loved by the king himself, and he did not want his wife to be put to death. And ultimately, God puts the right pieces together, and it causes the king to act in some of the ways that he does. So verse 21 tells us, notice, in those days when Mordecai sat within the king's gate, two of the king's eunuchs... Thon and Teresh, doorkeepers, became furious and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. So the idea is there was a plot made by two of these men who became disgruntled towards the king to assassinate the king. And Mordecai hears about this assassination plot against the king. So the matter became known, verse 22, to Mordecai, who then told Queen Esther, at this time she's the queen, And Esther then went and informed the king in Mordecai's name. And when an inquiry was made into the matter, it was confirmed. And both of those two men, who were plotting the assassination, were hanged on the gallows, and it was written in a book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. So a plot to assassinate the king develops. Mordecai, because he's in the right place at the right time, gets word of this. He then, having a relationship with Esther, who has now become the queen of King Ahasuerus, is able to tip her off and say, look, there's a plot to assassinate your husband and the king of Persia. She then is able to go and to tell her husband to protect him and to spare his life from the assassination attempt. And she tells him, the reason I know this is because Mordecai, who was out there among the king's gate found this out and out of his concern for you and wanting to protect your life he gave me this information that you might be spared and not be murdered and it says that the matter was checked into confirmed both men were then put to death as a punishment and verse 23 this became written down in a record that Mordecai had brought this information to the attention of the throne to spare the king from being murdered. Now, Nothing was done for Mordecai to reward him at this time. All it says is that it's written down in a record that he's the one who spared the king's life with his valuable information, and what we're going to see now is basically a divine delay. It's almost as if God causes divine amnesia to happen, and the king does nothing to thank or reward Mordecai at this time. The reason is because God in his providence knows it's not the right time for those events to actually take place. God will keep these records where they're at and keep these events kind of brewing in the background because God's working behind the scenes and down the road when it is necessary and the right time, then this record will be brought back out. And then what Mordecai has done will come to fruition. And actually it will be rewarded at the right time when the situation recalls or calls for it to be the most essential. Again, Sometimes, folks, God may bring about a divine delay, and sometimes that divine delay is because now is not the best time, and down the road is the more correct time. So trust the Lord. If something seems like it's being delayed, it doesn't mean God's overlooked or God's forgot. It could be that God is saying, now would not be best, but down the road would be perfect. Because certain pieces will come together that are much more important for something to happen down the road. So trust the Lord with his timing and remember this story because we'll see how it plays in in the chapters ahead.